Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Welcome to another edition of Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. How's it going, everyone? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of May 1st, 2023. All right, Lee, I want to jump into, it was an article about the RTM Locker ransomware as a service. It's now, you know, suited up for Linux architecture and it's it's by Uptics. And one of the things that always catches my eye, especially about these Linux targeted attacks, they always seem to um, bring in ESXi. Uh, and one of the things that's notable about some of the Linux based attacks in the ESXi, and it's even mentioned in this article, is it seems like a lot of the groups copy off the Babook ransomware because their code was kind of leaked out. So it seems like that's like the template that a lot of people start with. And so now you kind of see very similar capabilities and techniques utilized in order to achieve what their goals are. You know, they kind of walk through kind of how they're more kind of underground. They don't like to make the news as much as far as how they work and what they do. Um, They talk about, you know, some of their targeting. But one of the things I always find interesting is, you know, when they when they brought up the ESXi stuff, they had a function built in, but the function in the malware itself is actually just calling the ESXi CLI, which is the kind of the admin interface for ESXi management via the command line. And there's actually an article, a KB article, to actually grab logging for everything that's basically utilized through that CLI. But it's something that I don't think is on by default or it's probably not being collected, but it seems like you know ESXi infrastructure is kind of a high priority critical infrastructure because it probably caters to multiple services across an organization. So I, I would say it's very important to be looking at that data itself. But the one thing that's the most common thing being seen with how people are actually using ransomware against ESXi is they hit that command line. And one of the first things they have to do is they have to enumerate um, the window ID for the VMware instances that are running because you have to be able to call every VM by that ID if you want to kill that process. Because just like most ransomware you typically see, they're always killing services and killing things before trying to do the encryption. Because sometimes if something is running, it prevents the encryption from being successful or or making things not work correctly in general. And so that's what they do is they run this ESX CLI command, dumping a whole list of every single active VM, and then they have to feed that in. So I've seen one iteration of this where that command's kind of called in a one-liner, and then they kind of use a variable that basically calls a VXXI command to then aux, or not aux, aux through and pull out those IDs individually to feed them to that command. But this isn't something that can usually be done in a one-liner fashion. And from their implementation, it doesn't sound like it was. It sounded like they had to then dump the Windows IDs or window IDs and then 
have their program basically feed those one by one. So you'd probably see in this instance multiple commands. So you know something to think about not only just people force killing those VMs, but if you see them, probably see that command iterated through multiple times, which is a, a telling sign and something bad's going on. And I just think it's kind of a cool artifact that's just persisted for so long with these attacks because everyone seems to be copying the, the kind of same common thread at the beginning. Um, so that's kind of the first thing or main thing I focus on. They dig into some of the other functions because they did a pretty good job kind of breaking out uh, and reverse engineering some of the malware and calling out some interesting artifacts. But from a threat hunting perspective, you know, that ESX CLI data is just money as far as I think building effective hunts for different types of enumeration and attacks because obviously there's going to be both when attackers hit those services so i don't know uh, what your thoughts were when you looked at this but that's kind of my two big takeaways so real quick a question you said that it was based off of a previous attack previous ransomware that got released publicly you know it was one of the old ones babook is kind of what it's commonly re referred to as okay um yeah so so i guess initially uh, my thought there is that's pretty, not concerning, but interesting, if you will. If you have this common template that's being used, you know, it gives, not only does it give them a good starting point because it's, you know, a tried and true method that may be working, but it also gives defenders a uh, an idea or a model to look at and say, well, you know what, like we're seeing this a lot, or this is a common practice. How can we focus on the, the beginning of it or the steps of this find the commonalities and create the best hunts that we can. Because if you're going to, you know, if this template keep, continues to be used by different ransomware authors and all they're doing is rebranding and focusing on different things, then you could potentially already have a really good step in the right direction. Um, also, looking through the commands that were issued, these, you know, I like process creates, I like registry key modifications. I also see that they're, they're pushing out files. Right, they create a file, and if you are looking for, or the best thing I can think of is, you know, I like to tie file creates and see where they land whenever it comes to execution, because you never know what's being created in, whether it be, you know, Windows enumeration, right? You got the net, you got NL test, you got system info, host names, and all that stuff. But if the threat actor is using those tools or these tools to create a file, if you focus on the process ID of that execution, it might you might find the process ID that exists uh, with a file being created event as well. So this, you know, always think, um, or I always try to think of it from a different angle, right? We're not just focusing on process create events. Whenever I see that, what else is going on? So I know this is Linux, which is killing me <laughs> because I can't rattle off my normal, you know, Windows event codes, but if you are looking for something like this, keep your keep your eyes peeled for you know scheduled tasks, files being created and execution all in the same time frame, so that you could relate the activity to something central. But yeah, way to bring a Linux one up, starting to punch me then. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So yeah, what do you got? So my first article is from Trend Micro, uh, and it's titled Viper Soft X updates encryption and steals data. So this this covers a 
um, a malware named Vibersoft X, and it's a type of information stealing software. And normally it's focused on crypto. Uh, so, you know, it's going to target some things that exist on your environment. Some, some of the just big takeaways that I looked at was that they introduced DLL sideloading, which is something we constantly talk about. I feel like every time I'm on this podcast, <laughs> I hope Mike starts feeling better, but I feel like we bring it up every time just because it's so commonly used. It's such a trivial thing. And just to break it down real quick, DLL sideloading is kind of a, you're pretty much hijacking the execution flow by putting an executable in a directory and putting the DLL next to it that kind of relies on. Instead of going to look at system 32 or Cisco 64, what it will do is look in the directory first and see if there's a DLL. So if you are trying to hunt for any malware, really, and this this one just, or if you, I guess I should say, if you're suspecting DLL sideloading and going back to the file creates, I would look for executables and DLLs and other files being created within a quick matter of time and in the same directory. You know, once again, if you're hunting, look at, look at the same directory, see what else was created. Don't just focus on DLLs and executables. But so it goes through the steps, it sideloads the DLL, then it decrypts or it does some anti-VM and anti-monitoring checks. So it's looking for VMware, VirtualBox, Procmon. Um, they actually listed three different versions of it. It said Procmon, Procmon 64, and Procmon 64A, as well as Windows Defender and ESET. Uh, so, you know, it's looking for, it's going through the normal steps where it says, hey, okay, I'm finally on, finally in your environment. What kind of environment is this? Is it virtual? Let me check. You know, if it's a research one, they're not even going to, they usually, I should say, usually don't waste their time, but then they use PowerShell uh, to download the second stage from a .xyz, or they did anyways in this one. Um, and then that PowerShell continues to execute the second stage, which leads to ViperX that looks, or it'll crawl your machine for coin wallets, it'll crawl your machine for password managers to see if there's any, uh, or if you do have the coin wallets, are your passwords saved in there? Uh, and then, you know, it actually installs a malicious browser extension. All the meanwhile, it's sending data to C2 server, which they said actually rotates monthly. Um, so, which I find interesting um, because with, you know, domain uh, was DGA, domain generation algorithm, you could create a bunch, but it looks like they were just taking it easy and hard coding the domain and swapping that every month. Um, but for those threat hunters out there that were, this was like requested and I, you know, try and do my best. But the MITRE TAC tactics that apply to this, this article was technique 1059.001, which is the infamous command and scripting interpreter, which is PowerShell. We got tech technique or sub-technique 1574.002, which is the hijacked execution flow, the DLL sideloading we were discussing, and sub-technique 1071.001, which is application layer protocol for C for C2 activity over web protocols. Because it was I was just going over the web, focused on different uh, domains. Um, and I will say, I did not mention persistence in here, which was interesting to me. But what is your take? Yeah, so the first thing that, you know, popped out, same thing, the DLL sideloading, you know, stood out because, like I said, we've been talking about that a lot. But I thought it was interesting 
use case for them because it seems like you know typically DLL siloing is a way to get things to run that might be hard to run or could be detected and it seems like really their main way based on how they encrypted everything because if you had a sample of the DLL and the executable, the executable isn't a known executable, it's their own executable. So it's not like taking advantage of any known things and like, you know, vulnerabilities associated with those for that type of attack. Um, they use their own. And if you were to actually mismatch where you had the DLL and executable from a different, combined, like they weren't matched together, it wouldn't run correctly. So like kind of you had to have the full both files from the same attack to even be able to analyze it. But they spent a lot of time with the encryption to not only encrypt the, D, the code within the DLL, but also all the strings within the DLL. So like they really did a good job trying to harden whatever it was to prevent anything from looking at it. And you had to have like kind of like those two files as kind of a key and lock scenario. Um, so that was kind of an interesting implement, implementation and use case for DLL siloing. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, kind of got me thinking, it didn't really... I was hoping it was going to prove true in this case, but you know, you talked about how when it first kicked off, it did a bunch of checks, right, for virtualization type stuff, for you know, monitoring tools and and things like that, which is a very common approach for a lot of malware these days because sandboxing is such large capability, you know, even publicly for people to use. But I was really hoping that they did that when they pulled down their PowerShell specific stuff. And the only reason I bring that up is because, you know, it's not a, you know, in this case, it wouldn't work for this instance, but it's a good thing if you know you're not running virtual machines and you have that script block logging turned on. Just imagine if you're looking for those common keywords for like virtual box and VMware and things that attackers are using to check. If they're using PowerShell to do that, your script block logging would check it. And there would be no reason I could imagine an administrator, any normal user in an environment on their hard, uh, instance of their computer versus a virtual instance that they would ever have that in their logs right so it'd already be a huge alarm that hey why are we seeing powershell looking for these specific strings so this kind of highlighted that in my head even though it doesn't pertain specifically to this unfortunately but that stood out as something that you know things like that for uh how people enumerate offenses and things sometimes looking for those things yourself in places where there's good logging is a good telltale sign. So those are the two things that stood out to me here that I thought were interesting. A very good point. Once again, PowerShell script block logging for the win. So yeah, have- love that. All right, next. Let's see what we want to go to next. Uh, so I'm going to go to, it's from Bitdefender, and it's called Unpacking Bella uh, Io. A closer look at Iran's latest malware. I said, Kyle, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that's... Bella Chow? Oh, Chow. Yeah, you're right. I was like, I know that word, but for some reason it escaped me. Uh, good call. Italian in here. No, it's not like I'm embarrassed myself publicly here. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's reports about Charming Kitten, and it was a really uh, interesting malware and one of the techniques they used. You know, one of the first things I always look for... Uh, well, first I'll start with... You know, the main way they're typically getting in, we're really taking advantage of very public vulnerabilities for, you know, big software like Apache, Microsoft Exchange, VMware, um, ESXi, and things like that where, you know, Lock for Shell and stuff like that could be leveraged to kind of get in, which, you know, just basically taking advantage of people not taking care of their stuff, especially after things have been disclosed. But 
they, the one thing I like to look for next is what are some of the common things that I may already be looking for that they might do? And a lot of times it's funny, it usually comes up with like persistence in some cases. But in this instance, the most common thing that popped out because they do some really good sophistication as far as, or in it, utilize some good sophistication for communication, I'll talk about later. But is the simple, hey, they attempt to disable Microsoft Defender. And they use this, you know, typical PowerShell, you know, execution bypass command, set MP preferences, dash disable real-time monitoring, you know, variable true. Which, you know, I feel like people should already kind of be looking for um, in general, as far as how people try to tamper, with, especially with Microsoft Defender, because it's kind of like the baked-in tool if you don't have a tool working. So that one was like an easy way to kind of start seeing some of that. They, for the persistent side, they actually were using scheduled uh, services. Uh, the the thing about their scheduled service or the services they were installing where they're basically doing a lot of masquerading. So it might be really hard to kind of pick up on some of that except for when the net new service is registered. Uh, if you're looking at those and you're kind of aware that that should be running or that's weird, that it's all of a sudden spun up. But they get to their C2 stuff, which is really fascinating. So basically what they did was they kind of created their own language with DNS. And what I mean by that is they obviously know what their local IP was um, that they'd be coming from. And they know, and then when they make the DNS requests, depending on what the attacker wanted to do would determine what kind of IP address to send back. And it was using the IP address of the DNS request to actually issue what are the next steps kind of commands, you know, whatever. And the Bella Chow really is just a dropper. So main functionality is to upload, download, and then do a web shell if it needed to. And then you can do other things from there, right? Uh, but it was kind of cool because, uh, well, first off, the malware had to be compiled and it was very unique to the target because they really need to know what IP infrastructure publicly that those targets had to be able to implement this. But like, for instance, they mentioned where, you know, if all the IP addresses for the local IP addresses and the remote IP addresses were all the same except for the fourth octet of the remote, it means, and it's in that fourth octet is set to one, it tells it to basically remove all artifacts of the web shell um, and dropped resources and running processes. And then it can do where if they equal each other, it turns the same IP address as the, the local IP address. It basically says deploy the web shell. Um, and so it's kind of just an interesting way to kind of mathematically come up with a scheme for how they're going to get through different directories, what they're going to run, where they want to drop things. And they have a kind of a, a visual map in the article to kind of show the breakout of that. And it was just really fascinating to come up with a very unique way to try to blend in, right? Because every bit of that traffic and every bit of it will be legal, except for IPs that are being returned have really no value. And if you actually were in, went back and re-enumerated and did a DNS lookup on those IPs, you'd see they wouldn't match the domains they're already going to. And that'd be the really the, the most obvious way to detect something weird going on here. Um, and then had a, some other capabilities on like a later on where instead of using the masqueraded executables to do some of the stuff they were doing, they were using PowerShell as well with the Plink tool. It was kind of like a reverse proxy, which added some more capabilities that they you know currently weren't using with the, the initial compromise uh, capabilities. But um, like I said, the most fascinating thing here was just their use of the IP address like coding to basically issue commands and capabilities. So what do you think? Well, this was a huge report, and you covered a lot of things. <clears throat> I think the one one thing that always makes you laugh is that 
the things that you and I, or how we differ when it comes to what's fascinating. I like that you really focus on the networking and the encryption, when I really like to see the the endpoint, you know, schedule task or the a lot of stuff like uh, schedule tasks, persistence, uh, registry key modifications, things like that. So like my eyes honestly go to, you know, the different artifacts that exist there. And, you know, of course you mentioned the PowerShell, disable real-time monitoring. So automatically I went to, you know, script PowerShell script lock logging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, you pretty much nailed everything I was going to say. It's it's just interesting how they uh, operate. It's a lengthy report, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I feel like it's just one of those things where, like, I would consider that an advanced capability that I wouldn't just shoe in with, because there's a lot of planning and strategery, to use a dumb word. Strategery. Right. To, you know, it went through, and I think that's one of the elements that I would say kind of separates a lot of the, some of the commodity stuff versus advanced persistent threat. It's kind of like how in my head I differentiate because there's so many ways to communicate. Like the IP address scheming was was kind of unnecessary, but if they have the resources time and it works and they need that exist for a long period of time, that's a great way to blend in for a while. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and that sophistication really sets them aside from the, uh, what is like the 2FA fatigue where someone's just hammering something. Yeah, but you know they'll say that's sophisticated as well. Right. So So next up is from the Elastic Security Labs. They discovered the LobShot malware, which I found fascinating. Once again, uh, info another info stealing piece of malware that uh, or it's leveraged for you know financial gain. It uses a banking trojan and info stealing capabilities. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me about this was um, their focus, and they mentioned it was, um, they called it Hidden Virtual Network Computer, uh, or HVNC, which I had never heard of, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. So basically, and you know, when I was researching this, I had to look it up, but it's just like connecting to a computer and seeing, like it could be used for malicious activity, it could be used for you know your standard remote administration, but the idea is that the threat actors are hiding within the environment so that you can't see it. Uh, so their job is to you know they're trying to steal screenshots, they're trying to steal passwords, all this information that they can uh, from you, so that they can gain access to your or to your financial information. So going through you know it was mentioned that it was it stayed in the program data directory. It was added for for persistence was gained using the Windows registry or run registry key, which, you know, technique 1547.001, which once again is very common, which everyone should be monitoring. (laughs) It's just a place that is seen time and time again, right? Check for new registry key events coming from that directory. Once it, uh, once persistence is gained, um, then it starts to, that target specific Google Chrome extensions that deal with cryptocurrency wallets. And then, you know, it communicates over C2. But what I found pretty neat was that the Elastic team actually included some of the capabilities that the threat actor would have from using this tool. So, you know, they could start new explore.exe processes. So it would look like, so whatever they did would look like that explore.exe was apparent. 
the Windows run, or it would use the start Windows run command, um, you know, start browsers, terminate existing explore.exe processes so that it could only, it could replace that legitimate process maliciously. You can set and retrieve clipboard text and activate the start menu. So it sounds very, very hands-on from the threat actor's perspective and the capabilities that are included in this tool. I just found that fascinating because even though it was a, uh, you know, I understand that it's a hands-on keyboard, I can see what you're seeing, kind of gives an idea of what level that they actually have. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, so the first thing, like I said, some of the things I look for immediately are what are the, the common techniques that stand out that I'm probably already looking for or aware of in the register run key. It, I mean, it seems like I run into that just the most common. And I feel like if you're not looking at those types of things, uh, you're missing a great opportunity because that's usually one of the early, early things most things do if you want to get, you know, earlier detection, so to speak. Um, but the one thing I noticed was, you know, it's using an MSI file. And one thing about executions with MSI files is it uses the MSI exec.exe to execute. And then they talked about how it basically kicked off PowerShell. And I was trying to wonder, I was curious, like what that looked like from a process tree perspective. And there was a sandbox link that actually linked a report to a sample of this in the Joe sandbox. And, you know, looking at it, what was really interesting was I see where the or PowerShell process kicks off, but it doesn't directly tie as a child. Um, but the MSI exec basically kicks off MSI, uh, you know, random number dot temp exec. It looks, but it, so it's got the extension of temp, but it's really executable. And the command line actually has the parameters to run the PowerShell with an encoded command. Uh, and so I was like, man, that it's interesting, not only, uh, you know, the rest of your run keys, but it seems like if you were looking at, uh, Basically, uh, process creates where the extension A is not EXE extension. Uh, that's interesting because basically whatever is coded to run something, it, it's telling it to run because it knows it can, not because the extension is mapped that way as an environment variable. Um, so that stood out. I'm assuming MSI creates these dot temps all the time when it does like, you know, installer type stuff. But then looking at the command line and seeing where, you know, the command line has PowerShell. I know a lot of installers, you'll see kind of the quick CMD command prompt windows pop up. So that, that might be common, but I don't know if PowerShell is really as common for that. So that stood out as another interesting artifact that I keep in mind is when you see your process creates, why don't you just look for, I want uh, process create events, process create events that aren't tied to EXEs and see what pops. And then not only that, start looking for key things in the command line to either exclude or include or, or whatever. I think that'd be a valuable way to kind of hunt for non-standard execution is kind of what I would call it. So it kind of circumvents what people typically look for to possibly catch um, or bypass those early detections. So that stood out to me as well. I thought it was really cool. It's always, I guess it's always fascinating to see the threat actor evolve and what different things we need to keep on our toes and see. But what do you got to wrap us up? So yeah, this was uh, it's from the Hacker News, and it was the APT28 targets Ukrainian government entities with the fake Windows update emails. And you know this you know didn't strike me as uh, you know surprising, right? Based on the current events and such, there's a couple of things that just stood out to me. And one thing was really interesting. 
and that was well I'll kick off kind of what the attack was it was kind of like a phishing email right that basically was trying to get users to run a PowerShell script that was was you know tricking them to say this was going to update your windows which is just old and blatant move right like not like your typical hey I'm going to try to trick you with an office document or whatever I mean they're using a theme of windows updates but that is if no one's ever updated windows that way I feel like why would you fall for that uh, but needless to say it also kind of speaks to world events kind of determine behavior for actors you know you're not sitting there where you have the time there's no urgency you know you just need to you know figure out how to get in somewhere and then have that access in this case it's like the time is now we need to come up with something quick to do that type of cyber attack to whoever um and this one seemed to be more gathering information and that was the most interesting part to me so that yeah obviously they if people ran the PowerShell script, it, it basically did a lot of system information collection. So it might be like, hey, we need to come up with the next attack. So of our targets, we need to gather enough information so we can then design that. That's what maybe the rush was when, and without the concern because they weren't really doing anything special. So in this, you know, for instance, they're running like task list and system info and stuff. Which, you know, when you look at those common discovery techniques using, you know, Windows binaries, you know, that should be something you should already be looking at as well to that very low level. But it brought my attention to the Maki API site because that's what they're using. And I was like, what is that? And with looking at it, it sounds like kind of a test bed where you can kind of create your own fit kind of fake api and how you want to respond to things so that things can connect and you can like and even when you go there you create whatever it is and what you want to send collect or whatever and then you can manage a bunch of them so you almost have like a a free resource that's not intended to collect the data but if you had something that was trying to connect to your api and fish the data out there's really no controls around that i wouldn't think because you're just it's just a basic site that's it's not malicious and in this case they found a kind of novel way to data out it probably would blend in and make it look like oh yeah there's some sort of api site you know whatever not thinking like why are people connecting there and that i thought was super cool of all things in this entire article was just you know i think i've seen actors in the past do similar type of techniques with uh kind of those creative tech sites for like you know pay sharing or whatever but using that site that way, that just intrigued me. So I thought it was really cool to share. I mean, obviously, knowing that that is a potential site that can be used for bad, you know, one, I guess, look for it. But it'd be interesting to see, like, what other sites can you uh, find that are like that or, you know, identify that way? I don't even know what the web category would be. I didn't actually try to run it through, like, a categorizer to see what comes back to see then if I can find similar sites that way. That might be useful too if you have proxies that do categorization like what is that site categorized uh, categorized as and you have other similar sites being utilized for business purposes or, or not and just know that ahead of time for stuff like this too but yeah that was uh it was kind of short and sweet but that was kind of the, the things that stood out to me yeah it is pretty interesting i mean you think about it, like we've seen um samples being loaded up to virus total possible like sandbox detonation to test, you know, in the past, like you said, you know, are you thinking about app any run, whatever the case may be. So that that's stepping outside the box and finding a different place to test your stuff is pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, for those, I just want to throw out this disclaimer, for those uh, that may be listening for the first time or unfamiliar with the obnoxiously long list of APT numbers, APT28 is a threat group that is based in Russia or has been attributed to Russia. So if you think about 
like Polly discussed, the current affairs. You know, Russia and Ukraine are locked in conflict. So, like you said, Polly, this this seemed more desperation than you know sitting there and having the time to actually um, take your time, get access, sit and wait. This seemed like a you know we're trying to grab access as much as we can. And you know, looking at the article, the CERT UA, uh, or the uh, Ukrainian CERT, uh, which is the, and you may have to correct me, uh, Cybersecurity Emergency Response Team? Is that what CERT stands for? I think so. I'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> well, let's do this live. Yeah, CERT UA, for those that aren't aware of it either, it's a great resource, especially now because everything happening with the kind of the whole war effort in the cyber front gets reported there and they get all I mean, they report a lot of things from small things to big things it's a great treasure trove of information right now um especially if you're interested in russia specific entities because a lot of the obviously they're dealing with a lot of that you can f kind of start picking out some common behaviors from like attack to attack and things like that which is you know what thrusters like to be able to do um, as, as well as, you know, Intel analysts like to be able to kind of stitch and figure out. So I would definitely put that on people's radar. It's just a common place to, you know, touch base with from time to time. So I overthought the C, as usual. Oh, the computer yeah. emergency response team. It's computer. <laughs> I was right in front of me, too. Like, I was looking at the acronym and then the name's right next to it. I didn't even look at the name. But yeah, so those types of teams are located throughout the world. You know, you got your JP cert, which is Japan. I throw them out there any chance I get because they were the ones that really turned me into or steered me in this direction. Um, but it is really, really interesting uh, to see. And like you said, go check out Mandian's M-Trends, go check out IBM's yearly report, any big cybersecurity names that you can find that have a report, um, you know, that is like this year's cybersecurity landscape, you're gonna find the CERT UA in their response. and. I can't remember, and this is killing me now. I know there was an article that came out recently that had all the wipers that were seen in uh, Ukraine recently. Oh yeah, not come out. It's just huge. Like, if you want to look, and, and not this is a good thing, right? Don't get me wrong, but this is a prime example of what threat actors can do when they're really focused and they have a single mind of um, not just gaining, not just you know ransoming your organization gaining money but if you want to try and destroy a your enemy's digital footprint this past year is just really really shows what can be done yeah it's like cyber for effect for sure right so that, that was my big takeaways from this article yeah really interesting find as usual cool yeah so kind of close out a couple things we definitely want to mention you know we have our next live podcast May 18th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And one of the things, too, we want to kind of put on everyone's radar is we try to engage the community as far as that live portion. And we know not everybody can make it. And we and we love the kind of conversation ideas that kind of come from the, our listeners because I feel like if they're passionate enough to listen, they also have a pretty good voice, too. So we do have where you can hit us up at Out of the Woods, that's plural, at cyborgsecurity.com, you can ask any questions that you want to have answered or or topics that you want to be discussed. You can you know hit that up, and that that'll give us either you know time to address those appropriately, 
or at least you know get your concerns or I guess curiosities answered. So take advantage of that for sure and look forward to seeing everybody there. We also have a top cover, our third edition. It's going to be about reporting and communication. That's going to be May 24th from noon uh, to noon 30 Eastern Standard Time. And, you know, it's it's going to be short and sweet, but it's really going to kind of talk on like what would be effective communication from, you know, a management perspective and, and how you engage appropriately and effectively is is the main goal there. Um, and what some good reporting could look like. And then, Lee, you have another threat hunting workshop on Xfil May 31st from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You want to mention or talk on that a little bit? Yep. So as with, uh, if you haven't been to one of our workshops, what we like to do is we have a blog file that I basically ran an attack or emulated an attack. What we give you is an OVA. We give you a virtual blog or something you can, it's, you, know, you can download VirtualBox and run it. So it's a machine that's already configured uh, to run Elastic and ingest a log file for you. And you're, we walk through using Elastic what a threat hunt looks like. So we provide two demonstrations, normally focusing on two hunt packages that already exist uh, in the Hunter platform, but more of using the platform. We really focus on, well, once we get results, how do we pivot through the data? How do we find relations? or relationships that exist, and how can we tell the story in a report, or how can we intelligently speak about what we saw and how it relates? It's always a good time. Uh, you could always earn your badge as well if you put your skills to the test and find the flag, but it's fun on both ends. So I hope you join us. Yeah, so that kind of closes out some of our, uh, I guess, highlights we want to mention that are coming up. But just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast and looking forward to syncing back up with everyone next week. So that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of May 1st, 2023. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining and happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.